Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24. Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new Redefining Cybersecurity Podcast with Sean Martin. Have you ever thought that we're selling cybersecurity insincerely, buying it indiscriminately, and deploying it ineffectively? Well, perhaps we are. Let's look at how we can organize a successful information security program that integrates business culture with people, process, and technology to drive growth and protect business value. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. Pentera, the leader in automation security validation, allows organizations to continuously test the integrity of all cybersecurity layers by emulating real-world attacks at scale to pinpoint the exploitable vulnerabilities and prioritize remediation towards business impact. Learn more at pentera.io. Everybody, you're very welcome to a new episode of Redefining Cybersecurity here on the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. This is Sean Martin, your host, where I get to talk about all things operationalizing cybersecurity in the business to uh, not just to protect revenue, but to help generate it as well in a, in a safe and secure manner. Um, and my guest today was presented to me uh, the, the, the story was how do we operationalize security? I'm like, exactly. <laughs> That's the question. That's the question. So I'm, I'm thrilled to have, uh, David Abundrin. Abundrin. There Abundrin. We go. Yes. Yes. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on and I'm excited to dig into this topic with you. Um, so welcome. Same here. I'm very excited to be, to be here. And thank you so much for having me. It's a big, big, big pleasure. <laughs> I'm excited to hear about some of your experiences and, and how you help guide organizations uh, down this path to, uh, to success. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, before we do that, maybe a, a few words about your background, uh, what you're up to now, and uh, why this topic for you. I mean, there's so many things in the world to, to get passionate <laughs> about, right? Operationalizing security, I'm, I'm passionate. I'm wondering why you are. All right. Um, I've been in the technology space for about, about above two decades, about 25 years now. I started my first degree in electronics computer engineering, uh, and after which I went on to specialize in transmission and networking where I did all the STM, STM ones and long distance uh, um, communications, the traditional uh, network back home in Nigeria. Um, that's in West Africa. Uh, I proceeded into core project management 
and uh, rollout within the telecom space, uh, back home and technology space, also having a back pedal in cybersecurity, uh, worked around different industries, all around technology rollouts, uh, software deployment, different stuff here and there. Had a brief stint in, in HR and human capital. Uh, again, rolling technology into HR and human capital. They, this gave me the unique flavor of, of culture and how culture is a very powerful tool, uh, cultural influence, how to use culture to drive technology transformations. It, if you know how to do it, it is a sure way to reduce costs. And I'm going to get there. So, so my understanding of human capital and how it works and also human psyche and psychology and how to devolve change and operationalize change at the nerve endings because old habits die hard. So I, I did some work in that regard uh, and, and how to affect a group of persons and influence them to change, particularly in the direction of technology was something I picked up in HR and some deeper work in psychology. I'm going to get there shortly. And after which um, I went into deeper into agile project management uh, because I was doing waterfall all the while, also within cybersecurity. So, uh, and that's been my story. Then there about 2020, I went into my MBA at the Holt International Business School uh, and then I decided to deepen my footprint in the technology landscape by having a master's in cybersecurity, threat intelligence, and cyber forensics. That was now in 2021 to 2022. And right now, I do some work um, uh, with some organizations, helping them to cybersecure, uh, operationalize in a very cost-effective way. Uh, the challenge with cybersecurity for many CEOs and CEOs and C-suites is the challenge of costs. I, I frame it as costs, price, value, incident, mismatch. Costs, price, value, incident, mismatch. Uh, what is the true costs of cybersecurity? And as we say traditionally, if you think the costs of your cybersecurity efforts is too much, try the cost of incidents. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, and at the same time, what price are we going to purchase it for? At what, what amount of money are we going to put on the table? Yeah. That is, and price suggests the concept of value, that how valuable are these servers because on top of costs, there's now value. Both value, meaning the PL implication, either profit or loss, plus how much it costs us to do. When you add those two things together, you are now in the realm of value. Okay. The interesting question is that for many CISOs, on one hand, you don't want anything to happen. On the other hand, people wonder what are you spending all the millions and thousands of dollars on when nothing happens. <laughs> and then you come next year to ask for further funds <laughs> and not last year. And if it happened last year, it's a catch-22. The question is, but you collected money and we give you the money. How come something still happened? So whether something happens or not, the CISU and the world of cybersecurity is pitched 
to forever remain very nervous and uncomfortable. And I don't know how many cybersecurity experts or professionals are aware of how painful and stressful this is. It's a pressure to take on. Whether something happens or not, we will be blamed. You must accept this <laughs> quietly. So so how do we operationalize from a value perspective? So that we do not spend too much money, yet we deliver the value. The other interesting conversation is that cybersecurity isn't compliance. It's not installing patches. No. Those things are steps to get more secure. The actual security is a whole nine yards yards beyond that. And there are many, many people who misinterpret cybersecurity as the expenditure. I mean, you implemented ISO, you've done service ox, you've done NIST. Why? Why do we have? A, why did we have an incident? <laughs> Those things are compliance; is a minimum. Uh, uh, so, so all of these tensions create nightmares for CISOs and cybersecurity teams, especially from a project management execution perspective. So, how do we operationalize and spend not too much and not too little? the optimum amount using the risk profile of the organization to select candidate objectives into the project portfolio. This wisdom requires other kinds of alternate thinkings like the concept of human firewalls as an example. That all attacks and hacks are ultimately of two objectives or two kinds. It's a money financial gain attack and or always a human attack. It's either the human is the agent and or a human made a mistake (laughs) or a human being will be a victim. So we can operationalize by making the human being more fortified so that we spend a little less on the servers and all the different tools that we use Because if somebody doesn't click, for example, if we can change the culture of a click so that it becomes an anathema for you to click anyhow, excuse me, if we can curb greed so that you're not looking for reward anyhow, if these small things, if we are able to do them, we can literally do away with the servers. At least some level of sophisticated hacks is what we'll be facing yeah. if we're so, able to do this. Yeah. Yeah. So I want I want to pause you for a moment because um, yeah. you you've said so many interesting things and you're giving a good example, which um, may work for some organizations, may not work for others, yep. depending on the True. nature of the business and where they are. And yes, security is not compliance, but Compliance may say they have to do certain things um, and, and not remove a service. So I, I want to, I kind of want to go to the, to the beginning here. Um, yeah. I, having been a program manager for many years, everything looks like a program to me, uh, <laughs> whether it is or isn't. And um, 
And in marketing, uh, we have marketing programs that where you define, I'll just say, for example, uh, what's the go-to-market? So who are you trying to reach? This is very similar, right? Who are you trying to reach and, and yeah. what are you trying to tell them? And are they interested in, in yeah. using what you're offering? And, and that's kind of the outbound stuff. And then inside, do you, do you have the ability to build what they need? and to yep. sell what they need and to support what they need and to service yep. what they need. And there's a big full, big full picture. So I, I often think of things in that way mm. when I'm looking at cybersecurity, because yep. it's not, it's not just, I have a bunch of tools and services that I can deploy and I can build a program around it, quote unquote, mm. build a program around it and staff it with a team to run it. Um, I, I feel, and maybe this is where I'd, I'd like your insight, how well do, I, I feel we might lack in terms of what are the program requirements, I'll call it the, the product requirements from a development perspective. What, uh, do we do a good and a decent job at defining what are we trying to accomplish? What is the goal? What are the requirements so that we can then start to drill down? Or do we or do you find that companies tend to build up? We we are told these technology we have these holes and we need these technologies, and and at some point we can calculate some remaining risk exposure. <laughs> because because yeah, I agree. Because to the man with hammer, every problem is a nail. It's a sad. I mean. You, you even have whole cybersecurity programs driven not by the business needs, but driven by vendor influence and conference and conference intelligence. A CISO attends a conference, a CISO sees a new technology, doesn't really think deeply, is this an access uh, technology, for example, doesn't think deeply about the unique business case or business cases or use cases of identification within his business. And he implements them. So there's that big mismatch of think through. The other thing that is true, which we must give executives a lot of slack for, and it's not easy, is that seldom do businesses start thinking cybersecurity. It's, it's a more recent thinking that we think at the, at the start of a business, uh, except in the financial sector, or you're in a sector where there's regulation that says you must think cybersecurity, or where you get penalized, for example, if there are breaches in user data, like we have in China now, or the Asian world now, where CEOs go to jail if people are hurt by your negligence. Seldom do businesses start from thinking about cybersecurity. We design our businesses and our business processes at the Canva level from a value, business proposition, business success, profitability perspective. Cybersecurity generally comes after some wisdom and or incidents or industry happenstances or near catastrophes seldom do we start at the architecture state of the business. The security architect is a role that should sit with IT and business architects. But seldom does it happen that way. I'm glad you went there because, um, again, and apologies for, for people who uh, 
who find me crossing over into my product development <laughs> realm, but I, I like pulling on examples where things work. And to your point, when you're building a product, you, you define what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. And, and then you have a team, an architect and the engineers and the quality yeah. and the security and, and the business teams yeah. come together and say, how do we architect this thing? Yeah. How do we, and how do we design this thing to achieve yeah. what we want yeah. as an outcome? Yeah. And sometimes you have to make decisions and better up front than later. Yeah. To say these are the technologies we're going to build with. These are the technologies we're going to test with. These are the processes yeah. we're going to use. Yeah. And and you, you you might have to make some hard decisions and you might but you might also find, and this is something I, I try to uncover in all of my shows, is you might also yeah. find that if you do something a certain way, you can save people process and and money. Right? <laughs> that, 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 that that's germane. And and seldom in that initial conversation is cybersecurity there? No. It's just a general use case. It's a need in the market. We want to build a product. The problem is retrofitting is not easy. So something happens in the future, or we do a risk analysis, or we do an audit, or government regulation comes up, the general sources of risks, and then we have to, we're compelled to act. It's still retrofitting. What happens is that we will spend more money and in some cases, we may have incompatible legacy systems. Building interfaces also cost money at the end of the day. We have ERPs that, that don't do well with security. They do well with data breach, but they don't do well with some other elements of cybersecurity, like continuous, advanced, persistent threat behavior. There are ERPs that, that aren't set up that way. But we chose that ERP because transaction time is fast. Total number of users that can be on the platform is fast. How long the system can be on without disconnecting. The cloud storage facility is cool, but we are forgotten cybersecurity altogether. So something happens, somebody penetrates, and then we have to buy an interface, either a programmer and or some patches or some stress. Either ways. We spend more money by not thinking cybersecurity from the beginning. And remember, with cybersecurity, there's always a trade-off. You have to trade off either speed for multiple-factor authentication or customer comfort and convenience for multiple-factor authentication. If you do that or you don't do it, your customers will port and try another product that has a faster response time. Now, why do I need to put my thumbprint? Why do I need to put this? Why do I need to pull that? So the challenge with the cybersecurity realm of thinking is that if we don't do that at the beginning, it's a complex place to retrofit later. So security architects must be involved in the conceptualization stage of product design, product management, and all the way to enterprise or solutions management so that we do not come back and pay that money because when a problem is crystallized, few persons have the ability to juggle and give solutions. Interesting. So how, how do we, and this is an answer for the audience, not for me. Yeah. <laughs> how, 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 do we, how do we begin to take the right steps to, to build 
a program that uh, will produce the results we want. Okay, uh, number one, all the way from conceptualization, think cybersecurity. Think, as, as you're thinking about the processes, the users, the value map, think cybersecurity as a layer through the line end-to-end as you're thinking the value map and the value streams, think, think cybersecurity. It will help a lot and give you a more robust perspective. As you design the product, let risk analysis, risk proper risk analysis happen interface by interface as we go along the value map. When that is done and cybersecurity is thought through, we will come up with a robust proposition. In fact, we may find solutions that are nimbler, easier. Because most CISOs and most CIOs and CEOs and CMOs don't want to think about security in the beginning. It's too cumbersome, too stressful, too much show-stopping, but it will help from a life cycle engineering perspective to, at that inception, think cybersecurity. Can you give an example of where you've seen that work? And I, I'm going to guess that your uh, your experience with HR and uh, and the whole talent yeah. management thing yeah. plays a yeah, role there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've seen there was a hotel uh, that that was built back home in Nigeria. And they designed this it's a chain of hotels. So they had these designs and they started along the line. They had issues with people assessing the rooms behind their backs. The, the door systems were porous. There were challenges. So their consultant, a good friend of mine, he said, oh, D, what's going on? I have this particular project and he described the problem to me. And I said to him, very good. It's a chain of hotels. The next ones you're going to have, go research this. If you want me to come consult for you, give me one week. I'll give you a better door system. He thought it was a joke. I give him a more cheaper door system that you have to come in with your thumbprint. The person who registers at the reception is the only person that has access to that room. They had more security they began to charge more for the rooms in the newer hotels. And they saw revenue drop in the older hotels because people know, oh, there's a better product. Just thinking access as a layer of security. And if you tailgate, as you enter into the room, you receive an email in your box that instead of you alone, two people entered the room. The door has a small camera sensor and it says two persons entered or three persons entered. You received that email. It was a big deal because safety was an issue for the category and class of persons that was in your clientele. So subscription dropped, even though the earlier hotels were in the prime location, the, the first set the first set of hotels that they rolled out, but the new ones were in new settlement. People traveled that distance because it was more secure. If you go to a hotel, you probably want to be discreet. You don't want anything stolen. You don't want no drama. Why would I go to a hotel where if I have access, somebody is coming back into my room, I'm already compromised. So that was, the, the guy was, he couldn't believe it. They, 
the subscriptions dropped in the older chain of hotels. And I've seen this also in product development. You see, when you use a secure car, a cyber secure car that starts only with your thumbprint, you don't want to drive a general car anymore. <laughs> but the bar is raised. <laughs> there, there are cars that only answer to Sean. Say, hello, Sean. Good morning. Would you want me to drive to the? Would you want me to come to the driveway? And then he says, come. But if your wife says, come. So you don't want a car that your wife can open anyhow or your cousins can open anyhow. People have been known when you have something that's more secure or more personal to you because identity has the element of customer satisfaction. And, and it, can act, it can activate with your voice. If, for example, something happens to your thumb, it's going to activate with only your voice, coded to your voice alone. So there are many moments I've seen personally where if we think cybersecurity, we can even achieve stronger product differentiation yeah. and more value. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and and I, I, I can totally appreciate these uh, scenarios because what, what you're describing is to your point, that, that value, right? It's not an expense. It's not a hindrance. It's not a delayer. It's not, it's, it's a better experience. In fact, in many cases. Yeah. And, yeah. You, you know, Apple began to charge, Apple began to charge high enough because of security. There was a time you could not easily break Apple phones where you broke an Android phone easily. You could jailbreak. You can do that to Apple. The owner of the Apple is coded for life. There was a time it was like that. And then Apple saw this increase. Yep. And are there, so I'm curious to know how, a little bit more about the conversation because in the hotel example, I think it was, it was, Driven by events, right? Bad events. Yes, 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 yes. yes. And in the process, you started to talk about costs. Yes, and, yes, yes. And then you you jump to the the end result. Yes, <laughs> so, yes, yes, yes. So I'm wondering how how that conversation in the middle came around because I'm I'm envisioning a door lock system that may stand alone. But also has to fit into the rest of the operations of the of the hotel chain, right? All the chains together, and so how 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 did you come up with? Or how did those conversations sound? I guess to kind of bridge the gap between we need remember, to do something from here. It is. Remember, remember, it's a upscale. It's a upscale. It's it's not a low. It's not the average or the low end. Already, is a successful brand, but there were challenges with access. And they were getting customer satisfaction. And my argument is by having someone with access understanding or someone that understands access at the architecture level, at the, at the business architecture level, at the security architecture level, just not because they had the IT guy who had bought the previous lock systems and all of that. The problem is the moment I was able to demonstrate that they could get locks that were cheaper. Remember, technology improves and people don't really know what's available. Once we could prove that there's a lock that was more effective in terms of access and it's going to take records of who comes in and goes out so they don't need to keep warehousing data 
the servers are working, they're taking, they're taking the general corridors, the footages, and the memory, that's fine. But for the room, for the period the guest is around, and if for a few more days after the guest leaves, this door is able to give us information. It was, it was a done deal. And, and so they did a pilot with, with just one hotel that they were building, and it was phenomenal. The, after that, it moved up. Every single hotel now, I mean, <laughs> I don't consult for them this many years ago. They're back home in West Africa, but they are huge. And the general word went round, oh, they are safe and secure. Oh, they are safe and secure. Oh, I was just about using the print, fingerprint as against traditional locks. It wasn't anything mega. It was personalized. It was people feel more comfortable. It won't open to another person. But with the cards, with the traditional cards that they used, you could charge it, discharge it, and all of that. And with the fingerprint, it's all manipulates and overrides. It will show on the system, on the server, that someone had used the general card and it wasn't fingerprint that came in. And whoever that person, the login happened under, would face the music. It was a very brilliant solution. And that's a very small use case that, that is applicable in business. Cybersecurity is not a cost, it's a value maintaining or value adding service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Customer facing value, which is really cool. Do you, do you have any? I'm trying to think of internal customers now. And you mentioned ERP earlier, so maybe there's something there. But I'm wondering, do you have any examples where it's not necessarily out, outward end user customer facing, but internal? users so supporting hr supporting sales supporting engineering where you've seen you've seen a change in in infrastructure or the way something is built that it becomes more secure and then in a similar way i'm assuming provides value to those users yes um in my days in, in telecoms rollouts there was, when the networks were being designed at first, there wasn't too many central monitoring for the fuel tanks. There wasn't too much central monitoring. The tanks were autonomous and independent. And the, the way to know that a base station was going to lack fuel uh, energy was to look at when last you fueled it and use consumption rate. So you go there every three days or every four days to supply. But there came this team, uh, a new general manager came in, in charge of power transmission. And he went for monitoring monitors, monitors that are intelligent and looked at the tanks the, the, the sensors were inside the tanks and it could relate to actively could see on a screen as, as it was being depleted and what level of reordering, uh, at what point uh, you have to reorder trigger, reorder level triggers. Uh, it was a very powerful, because for the first time, the company now saw how much fuel it was losing. So once you drop the fuel in the tank, because some of those sites were not manned by anyone, these traditional base stations, people, community, people in those communities went there to begin to siphon the fuel. 
take the foil, find a little leak and take the foil out. From a reorder perspective, you're putting back foil every three, three days. But unfortunately, you're not consuming that much foil. So at the, at the back office, the operations team were thinking, the, the network operations guys were thinking maybe it was wear and tear. Maybe the tanks were now getting old and the engines were supplying because this happened over a period. It began to consume more fuel until this GM came and said, no, 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 no. I want line of sight with my tanks. Just line of sight. Business value, about 20% more fuel was saved. Because because there was line of sight. (laughs) Thank you. Just just line of sight, not even securing, not even external cameras yet, just having line of sight to how fuel was being depleted. That's all. And and from that time till today, in fact, what has happened now in that market in Africa is that all the operators are using the same base stations. So they all come together to use the same physical station. However, they hang their antennas on the masts so that they achieve economies of scale. Now, as that has happened now, I can confirm to you that as an industry, the carbon footprint is also dropping because they don't have to have three different base stations in the same locations anymore because coverage is around ARPU anyway, average revenue per user. So coverage is commercial. So the places where they have bigger coverage is where there's commercial propensity for consumption of the telco services and data. So the places where we're prone to ozone depletion or energy depletion based on consumption of fuel, they are collaborating heavily and they are using these devices to monitor the tanks. And it's just one central tank anyway in charge of an external contractor, but that contractor inherited that solution from that particular telco operator. And, and they rolled it out and, and it's made the industry far more efficient. Okay. Yeah, we often forget uh, availability and, and uh, efficiency. You can wrap into that as well as part yeah. of the, uh, the security uh, calculation. I want yeah. to, um, in our last few moments here, um, it, it's something that I often think of when I, when I look back at my... Uh, my time as a as an official program manager. Yeah. That, uh, it, it's all about making decisions, right? Yep. Yeah. And sometimes you have no information, so huge amounts yeah. of ambiguity. And sometimes <laughs> you have you have too much that yeah. either you can't make sense of, or it's contradictory, or <laughs> not. So, yeah. your thoughts on handling too little, too much the right amount of information to make good decisions, know when to not make a decision, know when to make a redecision, um, and, and uh, obviously focusing in on the cybersecurity programs here. How, how, do, we, how do we do that uh, effectively? Whew, that's a complex question to ask. And you have 30 seconds to answer. No, I'm kidding. Ah, ha, ha. <laughs> how, how, how do you know how to make good decisions. In a nutshell, exactly. Good decisions come from experience. How do you gain experience? 
by experience over time. <laughs> How do you make the best decisions in the shortest possible time by experience over time? Right. Uh, there's, there is. Some, there does, some, does that mean you have to have that experience yourself, or can you tap into it? You can tap into it. You, you, you can observe others. You can read up. You can partake in live exercises. Um, um, there are there are intelligences that we have as human beings, and if we are deliberate about them, we can develop them. One of them is called intuitional intelligence, or what you call gut feeling. For many people, is untrained. Your gut feelings, your gut intelligence, very, very, very dangerous in its crude form. But if it were trained, it has a lot of benefit. For example, trained armed men and women like the police or the army know that a split second before someone pulls the trigger, there's a silent quick dilation of the eye towards the end. Policemen do not fire at a criminal until they see that muscle. It's an involuntary twitch. Once they see that muscle, the hand is about to move. Unfailingly, science has proven it over and over again. There's no room for deviation. That's an example. That's a, an interesting one. Yes. Where, where, from experience, before someone pulls the trigger, there's a holding of the breath. A little tenseness of the muscle and that twitch of the eyes. Because in court, they must prove that the criminal really was going to shoot. And that's the only way they could have shot. Otherwise, they'll be charged for manslaughter. So there are many, many powers of the human soul that are there naturally that we do not develop, neither do we spend time to groom them. I know this because of my work in psychology. Um, I can give you many examples. If someone is lying in a meeting, there are patterns. If someone is saying the truth, there are patterns. If you master it well enough, you can be as accurate as a lie detector machine. Uh, there are whole classes on this. I've, I've lectured some of those classes before where you can literally predict what's in someone's mind. The exact feeling, thought, emotion, imagination in someone's mind, you can have access to it. And this is not witchcraft. It's not nothing. It's techniques in psychology that medical doctors use already. Medical doctors, for example, can gauge how much pain you are in, even though that's the first time they are meeting you. They can observe when patients come into the clinic and the person is unconscious, medical science has ways of knowing that this patient is at a deep level of pain. With some study and some development, a lot of us as managers can grow these skill sets. But not on the day when the intuition is needed is when you want to now start practicing it. It can fail easily. It must be deliberate development before the event. That's how to know, that's how to grow those kind of capacities. Yep. You've said that observe word again, and, uh, and you just described the scenario that's been in my head as well. I'm thinking playbooks, I'm thinking tabletop exercises, where you, it may not be a real, a real thing, but you're, 
you're observing it. You're experiencing it. You're interacting hopefully with others and, and building that, that experience. Yep. Yep. And that, and hopefully your intuition and the gut feeling. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, David, uh, it's been fantastic chatting with you. Uh, tons of great little snippets of stories in here and examples. And uh, I'm I'm grateful for you to, to being on the show and, and for sharing your, your insights with me and everybody who's listening and, and watching. And uh, yeah, so again, thank you very much. And uh, I think we'll Thanks leave it here. Thanks we'll, a lot for having me. Uh, it's my pleasure. And I'll, uh, I'll include links to your profile uh, so people can get in touch with you if they want. And if there are any resources you think uh, would, would help folks uh, gain that experience and uh, observe things real or, un- or unreal, so just, just so they can give, get that experience, um, that would be great. I'll, I'll include those in the show notes. All right. I, I look forward to hearing from, from as many that will be interested in uh in, uh, in in working the journey or any of the points I've raised, uh, it's always my pleasure to share. Always, fantastic, David. Thank you so much, and thanks Thank everybody you. for listening and watching. And uh, be sure to uh, stay tuned for more. Share with your friends and uh, foes alike. Everybody deserves to know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, subscribe so you catch the next one. Thanks everybody. Thanks, David. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Yeah, Pentera, the leader in automation security validation, allows organizations to continuously test the integrity of all cybersecurity layers by emulating real-world attacks at scale to pinpoint the exploitable vulnerabilities and prioritize remediation towards business impact. Learn more at Pentera.io. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Cybersecurity with Sean Martin, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, Then share this show and ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand with our conversations, you can sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24.